The United States Constitution is an influential document. And that's actually kind of an understatement, because in addition to this document, which was written on just four pages of parchment in 1787 and then ratified in 1788, in addition to it influencing the shape of the United States in fundamental ways, it has also gone on to shape the governments of other nations, which in many cases have attributed their own constitutional language and contents to that of the United States. That influence has waned since the end of the Cold War, when an explosion of new constitutional democracies around the world led to an increase in variation as to what those constitutions contained. But the concept of a nation created intentionally, on purpose, and under the auspices of fundamental rights and protections for its citizenry was an idea that caught on like wildfire. It's weird to think that this was not a common thing until very recently in history. And many countries that formed after the creation of the U.S. Constitution were formed as a consequence of that idea. Revolutions and reformations were sparked by the concept of representative democracy, guaranteed human rights, and a set of core principles that are used to develop law moving forward. The document itself is made up of seven articles, or sections, the first three of which discuss the separation of powers within the government. The next three are all about federalism, which designates the difference and relationship between the federal countrywide government and the state governments. And the seventh article is about how the 13 states that existed at the time when it was written could ratify the document and make it the official structural law of the land. Later, ten amendments were added, collectively referred to as the Bill of Rights, because they outline protections for the individual and introduce restrictions as to how the government can impugn upon the liberty and justice of U.S. citizens. And most of the next 17 amendments expand upon that concept. Some are more about the processes and procedures the government must undertake to get things done, but generally, these amendments increase individual civil rights and place more restrictions on the government. That has traditionally kind of been our thing here in the U.S., terrified as we've always been, culturally, from the very beginning, about monarchies. The U.S. Constitution is considered by many to be the first true constitution of this kind, though other nations like the Republic of San Marino, which, fun fact, is officially named the most serene republic of San Marino, has one of the oldest sort of constitutions in the world. Theirs was written in Latin in the year 1600, well before the U.S.'s 1787, though many scholars argue that the six books that make up their sort of constitution is not really a constitution at all. It's too long and not fundamental enough to meet the definition of that term. And there are rumors that other constitution-like documents may have existed earlier than the U.S. Constitution in Canada, New Zealand, the U.K., and Saudi Arabia, among other nations. Though there's no physical evidence of these documents today, so as far as much of the scholarly world is concerned, the U.S. Constitution remains the first and most influential 
of this type of document. The U.S. Constitution is unique among all the others that exist today, though, and almost all nations have a constitution at the moment, though some countries like Israel, the United Kingdom, and New Zealand have collections of laws in various places throughout their legal system that serve the same purpose, but which have not been formalized and codified into a single document. But of those that exist today, the U.S. Constitution is strange in that it's first, so incredibly short, just four pages, and second, in that it hasn't fundamentally changed for over 200 years. Most constitutions worldwide have a 38% chance of being changed each year, and most are fully reworked with an entirely new constitution introduced every 19 years on average. The U.S. Constitution, on the other hand, has only been amended 27 times in its entire history, and one of those amendments was introduced to repeal a previous amendment. Only one such amendment has been added within the last 40 years, and beyond that, the document that shapes all law and order within the United States is the same as it was in the 18th century. Because of this, even though the document is still historically influential, a study conducted in 2012 found that although 160 of the 170 constitutions that exist around the world have been influenced in some way by the U.S. Constitution, Canada's Constitution, which is a collection of codified acts and uncodified traditions and conventions, has become more influential and is increasingly so year over year as international constitutions are revised and replaced. But despite the global shift toward more dynamic, iterative documents, the U.S. has clung to its constitution in an almost dogmatic fashion. And truth be told, there are worse structural concepts to which a culture could be beholden, but no matter how forward-thinking in its time back in the 18th century and the 19th century for many of its amendments, one cannot help but wonder if we've reached a point where the Constitution has become something of a religious document more than a governmental one, something more akin to the Ten Commandments than a living root system from which all law and justice can grow. What I would like to talk about today are sacred cows and why it is so difficult to even consider killing them. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. So this coming September, September 2018, I will be going on tour around North America, and I'll be speaking live about a variety of topics but particularly things like living intentionally and being aware of your own perception of things and the different influences that can warp that perception. It should be a whole lot of fun. I'm very excited to present this talk that I've been working on. And if you are in one of the cities that I will be visiting, you should totally come out, say hello, hear the talk, get a handshake or a hug. And I will be signing books as well, so if you already have one of my books and you'd like me to sign it, feel free to bring it out, and I will have books on hand if you are into owning paperbacks and getting them signed by the author. 
Now I'm systematically booking the venues and making tickets available for this tour. It's a year-long tour. I've spread it out quite a bit. So I'll be going from September 2018 until September 2019. But already, as of the day I'm recording this, there are tickets available for St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, Toronto, New York City, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and there is a book signing and meet-and-greet event in Jacksonville, Florida. So if you are in one of these cities or in the vicinity and you'd like to come out and say hello, I would love to meet you. Go to becomingtour.com to find out more about these events and to snag a ticket for yourself and maybe a friend or two if you want to make it a group thing. Again, that's becomingtour.com. All right, let's get back to the show. This, I think, will be an interesting episode, as sacred cows are labeled as such for a reason. They are held sacred by many, and it is therefore generally sacrosanct to think of them in any other terms, rather than something that is unmoving and permanent and ideal in some way. That label, by the way, sacred cow, refers to the hallowed place of cows within certain belief systems especially Hinduism, and it began to see use in newspapers in the United States in the late 19th century as a metaphor for topics that could not be touched, particularly at the time, topics that politicians would not touch, because the topic was almost wholly in the minds of people, and therefore it was assumed anyone who brought them up as a topic of potential discussion would be signing their own political death sentence. Like the literal sacred cows that evolved into that metaphor, however, these concepts, these untouchable, unchangeable ideas, differ from place to place. In India, traditionally, you simply don't kill the cows. In the United States, we have vast industries dedicated to doing just that, and on massive industrial scales. And in the United States, we have a version of capitalism that fuels a version of representative liberal democracy, while in Cuba, since 1959 or so, they've had a dictatorship of the proletariat-style, quote-unquote, communist government, run by the Castro regime. First Fidel, and today his brother Raul. Their economy is primarily state-controlled and planned, much like the Soviet Union was before them. And most everyone is employed by the state, though there have been pockets of small businesses popping up lately. Their official status, uncertain, since everything ostensibly belongs to the government or to the collectives, and these small businesses kind of operate outside of that. What that means in practice is that if you want to hire a Cuban citizen to do anything, any type of work, whether you are in Cuba or elsewhere, you pay the Cuban government, and the government then pays that citizen a standard monthly wage of around $20. That was the average as of 2014, at least. Cuban citizens are also issued monthly ration books, which entitles them to food and other necessities for a relatively small fee. But the ability of the individual to earn more than any other individual is severely limited under this system, unless you have an in with the dictatorship. But things have been changing in Cuba over the last decade or so. Fidel died in 2016, leaving the country under the control of his brother Raul, and the emergence of the internet 
and the slow introduction of public internet services to the people of Cuba has led to substantial cultural shifts among the populace. Even though the overall structure has not changed significantly, and authoritarian positions on things like censorship remain in full effect. That in mind, the article I want to start with today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled Communist Run Cuba to Recognize Private Property in New Constitution. This piece reports that Cuban state-owned media, again, censorship, and central control are the name of the game here, so state-owned media is pretty much the only option for this type of information. State-owned media in Cuba is saying that market reforms meant to boost the economy in the country will include recognition for private property, which importantly includes businesses owned by families and individuals. The government already recognizes to various degrees property owned by cooperatives, farmers, individuals, and joint ventures alongside state-owned property, obviously. So this will allow folks to own businesses that are not actually owned by the government, which would potentially be quite good for entrepreneurs, but which could also quite possibly pave the way for more foreign investment, which is currently a tricky proposition with their existing laws, because if an outsider comes in and builds a business, the government kind of technically owns it, which is not cool for most businesses. This change is just one of many included in the updated forthcoming Cuban constitution that will purportedly, among other things, introduce the position of prime minister, officially recognize the free market, and impose a term limit on the presidency, which is a pretty big deal. The BBC reports that the new constitution will also include language that bans workplace discrimination based on gender, disability, and ethnicity. Now, it's important to really emphasize that first, all of this reporting is based on secondhand sourcing of information. Second, this is a very short summary of what's to be included in the new constitution that will have 224 articles compared to the 137 articles that the current Cuban constitution has. So there will be a lot of other declarations that will no doubt seem less wonderful to capitalism-fueled liberal democracies as well. And third, there have been reports that alongside these new revelations, there is also reaffirmation that the Communist Party will remain the dominant political force in the country, that self-employed and entrepreneurial individuals may be fined, including potential confiscation of their property for operating outside of the system. These businesses have been largely ignored up to this point, so that would be a big change. And there will be a referendum on all of this, so there's still a chance that it could be rejected either by the political system or by the people. So this could all just sputter out into nothing and could be swapped out for something new entirely by the time it actually becomes tangible. It's difficult to know how such things will pan out, even in places where the media is relatively free, much less in places where journalism is controlled by the government almost completely. But what's most interesting to me about all of this is the perception alteration that comes with this type of action. The paradigm shift that comes with any significant change to the status quo, and the potential for a major paradigm shift under the subsequent unusual circumstances. The dissolution of the Soviet Union, for instance, was catastrophic for the existing status quo in the area for a long while after the beginning of that shift. 
And not just within what became the former Soviet Union, but around the world, that big, reliable communist dictatorship gravity well disappeared. And that left philosophies and politics and military strategy flying out in all directions for a good long while afterward. Some might argue that certain aspects of that time period, which only really ended very recently, I remember personally when my family swapped out our globe that we owned for one that said Russia instead of the Soviet Union when I was a kid, and some might argue that we are still in the midst of that transition, especially in regard to certain aspects of military strategy, political thinking, and ingrained good guy, bad guy, dichotomous perceptions. These shifts, though, even when they take a while to fully manifest, to come to some sort of completion and new stability, are remarkable moments because they tend to kill off a lot of the sacred cows that were held in such high regard until just the day before. That is wild to think about. What's happening in Cuba may or may not be the beginning of something that monumental. For some people, it will no doubt be more groundbreaking than for others. And some people may barely notice the difference. But nonetheless, it's a shift, even if that shift is more philosophical and gestural than tangible. Acknowledging the free market, acknowledging the individual's right to own business-related assets, dividing up power, and pulling back on the pseudo-monarchy that has reigned in the area for decades, that's a pretty big deal, even if it's not on the same scale as the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Changes like this, they seem pretty brave to me, even in the cases where the result is not something that I personally find to be desirable or favorable for most people. The 1917 Russian Revolution that led to the creation of the Soviet Union, that was a pretty remarkable thing. Because even though the transition was spread out over the course of the next five years, as different parties fought with each other over what the new government would look like, being able to imagine oneself out of one's current intellectual confines, outside of one's current practical and philosophical reality, that is an impressive feat. It's a bit like imagining how the United States might change if we were to suddenly do away with the idea of private property and implement a government ownership system with all possessions technically owned by the state, the government deciding how many paperclips to produce each year, and everyone making roughly the same amount of money per day, regardless of what work they do. It's difficult to imagine, isn't it? Private property, the idea of being compensated for the work that you do, and theoretically at least compensated more if you create more value for society. The idea of being able to outwork the other guy and to be rewarded for doing so, to be able to pursue economic well-being and to potentially elevate oneself monetarily, these are concepts that are as close to dogma, as close to a secular religious ideology as we get here in the United States. And it can be tricky to imagine ourselves without that system, even if we were to determine that some other system might be more ideal, or some tweak to what we've already got might help us accomplish the same aims better. This concept of success through economic accomplishment is fundamental to the idea of opportunity and self-determination here in the United States. You might say that it is sacred. I like to challenge myself when I read about these sorts of shifts elsewhere to identify norms that I take for granted, paradigms that I have trouble even recognizing because I'm so deep inside of them. They are the water and I am the fish. It is just so ever-present around me that I have no reason to notice it. 
and then to imagine how things might change if those paradigms were to shift around me. Consider, for instance, what the United States might become if we discarded our constitution entirely and wrote a new one, or how life might change if we moved away from our current economic system, an increasingly corporation-favoring pseudo-free market system perched precariously atop mountains of make-believe wealth in the shape of multi-level debt, and instead decided to make everything free. To drop everything in an effort to perfect the technologies required to ensure that everything we can make today, every type of food, every type of product, every widget, every building, can all be produced free of charge for anyone who wants one. So long as no one goes overboard and asks for 30 mansions or something like that, we can produce it all. We will have the resources and capability to do so. We decide that we will make achieving that capability our national focus. How might things change if we refocused on abundance in that way? And managing that abundance, as opposed to our current focus, which is almost entirely predicated on managing scarcity. Or, how about this? This is one that I have struggled with a great deal recently. How might things change if we began to question the concept of democracy? Especially in the post-World War II era, questioning this tenet of American and, in some ways, Western faith is nearly unthinkable. Using some type of democracy to manage the government, to manage the people, to manage those scarce resources, it feels obvious, destined, unshakable in some way. But what if something seemingly better, more ideal in most ways, came along, and we had to decide whether or not to switch over? That's kind of what Cuba's dealing with here. To the folks running that country, the model they have been using has always seemed ideal to them. And the flaws inherent in the alternative, the free market, liberal democracy, they have not seemed worth it according to their standards. It's not worth throwing away everything that they've built to change over to this other thing that has different pros and cons. This is a useful intellectual exercise, I think, to imagine such a scenario and to make such comparisons, even if you live in a place that seems to already have everything figured out. Because, again, the folks in Cuba, they have generally felt the same way. And if there is a chance that they were mistaken, could we be mistaken as well? I think that's an absolute possibility. Capitalism-fueled liberal democracy has become the universal connector between even those nations that are not technically democracies, and which don't consider themselves to be capitalism-based at all, like China. When they deal with other countries, they deal with other countries in that same way, which says something about that model's utility as a compelling means of value exchange. But what if we were to develop some kind of near-perfect artificial intelligence? Not something that's conscious, but something that is just amazingly capable and which can thoroughly process nuance and gray areas, soaking up all the data in the world, determining the legitimacy of that data, and then making law and legal decisions based on that data. If we could develop a pseudo-dictatorship based on that type of artificial intelligence, a model in which everyone is allowed to pursue happiness, whatever that means for them, a model that perfects the distribution and availability of resources, which helps us become carbon neutral, which helps us become wealthier, which helps us reduce conflict around the world to near zero levels, a model that, in essence, can manage a government as perfectly as we can possibly imagine a government being run. Would we use it? Would we use 
that artificial intelligence-based government, even though it would technically mean giving up our democratic values in favor of a non-human dictator. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of trouble thinking about this possibility in an unbiased way. On one hand, I think experimentation in this regard is a good idea, and I think we should absolutely make use of new powerful tools to amplify our capabilities and to equalize opportunity between people of various backgrounds. On the other hand, I tend to think the democratic model, the concept, if not always the practice, which can be very flawed in its application, I think it's a fantastic idea and one of the better ways to keep a society from stagnating when the world changes around us. And I worry that any sort of dictatorship, even a tech-based one, would severely limit us in that regard. On one hand, I feel like with this type of theoretical system, we might be able to solve many of the problems that plague us today. From the question of who gets punished and how, to the question of how to ensure that everyone has the same access to resources and opportunities without limiting our inherent freedoms. On the other hand, I worry that this sort of seemingly perfect system, although it could provide a salve for some of the things that ail us today, it could also lock us into a never-ending present, where everything is stable and fine, but nothing ever moves, because new changes could not be easily implemented, worked into the formula, or because it's determined that too much experimentation and change creates too many new variables, it creates points of weakness in an otherwise structurally secure system. So it's decided instead that we keep things as they are forever. On one hand, I don't think democracy is the be-all, end-all, and I do tend to believe that, like Churchill famously said, though I'm mangling his quote a bit, that democracy is the worst system of government ever, except for all the others that we've tried. There are a massive number of flaws in democratic systems, and for these systems to work optimally, we all kind of need to be extremely well-informed and experts on a variety of subjects, not to mention needing to be continuously aware of how our government operates, despite all the other pulls on our time, all the other neat, flashy, entertaining things that try to distract us from acquiring such knowledge and caring about such things the way that we would need to. On the other hand, I do question what might happen if we were to turn this gargantuan economic ship in a new direction, only to find that it's not everything we hoped it would be. It's fine and good to say this new model of governing and of handling the creation and dissemination of value is better. It's another thing entirely to adjust everything we've ever made or thought or built so that they realign with that new paradigm. It's possible to have this sort of internal debate on a smaller level too, something less dramatic. What if we didn't rewrite the U.S. Constitution, but instead just decided that, hey, it was a pretty remarkable and useful document for its time, but today, it's a little less relevant than it needs to be, isn't it? Let's pull away from that historical baggage and focus on the needs, the priorities, and the opportunities of today. Let's modernize our governmental philosophy. This is not just thinkable, it's something that through some lenses is already happening, if not overtly. One could argue that a lot of the legislation that is made, rulings that are handed down contemporarily, are based on interpretations of the Constitution in name alone. What's more, we've amended the Constitution before, but not much recently, only one amendment in the last 40 years. What does that say about how we are thinking in the 21st century? 
It could mean that we have built so many derivative interpretations atop those old pieces of parchment that for all intents and purposes, we have already overwritten their initial intentions. They've become a bit like the Ten Commandments. Sure, it says thou shalt not kill, but that's never stopped even the most religious Abrahamic God-fearing leaders from ordering their troops to kill the enemy. We can justify away just about anything and still point at old documents and say that we did it in the name of these sacred traditions that were handed down to us from on high from folks who were presumably wiser than us. Now, that doesn't mean those justifications are true. And this is an unpopular thing to say, I know, but let's remember, we don't have any real reason to believe that older ideas are better in the first place. You would not, probably, trade your smartphone for an abacus. So why should you take your modern philosophy or modern way of managing a government, which include everything that we've learned from every previous generation, and trade them for the Bronze Age or 18th century equivalents? But that's a rhetorical question. We do it because of tradition, because of our reflexive support of the status quo, and because, well, we kind of have trouble imagining other potential better ways of doing things. So let's just revert to the norm and leave it at that. Let's stick with the organizational equivalent of the abacus. That may seem like kind of a flippant way to discuss this type of topic, but I think that sort of flippancy is required, in a way, if we're going to avoid the conversational pit trap of giving increased weight and respect to things that are old just because they are old, and giving increased weight to things that are established just because they're established. There's a Matthew effect benefit for older ideas. They benefit from cumulative advantage over all future ideas. And the best way I have found to bypass that is to just discard propriety, to disregard respect for the sacred when thinking these sorts of thoughts. It's not always easy, and it's especially not easy as a conversation topic to discuss these things with others rather than just in your head. But I suppose that is also the case with many other challenging and potentially valuable topics of conversation as well. Sacred cows are concepts that are immune to questioning or criticism. And that, to me, is dangerous. Regardless of how wonderful the concept, how humanistically beneficial the idea, no matter how successful the governmental model Democracy, arguably, has led to one of the most fantastically peaceful and intellectually wealthy periods in history. There's a lot to be said for it, and for its pairing with different flavors of capitalism. Even if we choose to acknowledge those benefits, though, we can still acknowledge the flaws in these systems, the trade-offs for all that relative peace and prosperity, and we can wonder and discuss how we might make things even better, what that might look like. To do otherwise would be the equivalent of developing a drug that cures all strains of the flu, but which also makes all of your hair fall out. It would be unquestionably wonderful to reliably cure the flu. That is a miracle drug, but it's probably prudent to also keep researching, to come up with alternative methods, because the trade-offs there are not ideal. To just settle on that one method forever, because it's pretty damn good, would be ridiculous. And the same is true of our philosophies, our governments, our economic systems. It's possible to appreciate what we've got and the benefits therein without resting on our laurels and assuming that history is over. We've finished. This type of civilizational structure is clearly the last level of the game. We have beat the final boss, and the outcome is just a little less impressive than we might have expected. 
No, we can keep playing. We can keep questioning. We can find the next level and continue onward. Quite possibly in perpetuity, figuring out a way to make that journey, that constant iteration, less taxing, less harmful than it's often been in the past. That type of journey is the destination that we want to reach. Because revolution and other types of upheaval tend to suck for the majority of people, even if the intended result may be better for everyone eventually. So coming up with ways to make this questioning process and acting on the answers that we come up with a little better for everyone to protect folks from the discomforts and dangers of change, that, to me, seems far more important and beneficial than defending the status quo in an ineffectual attempt to stop progress in some stasis-based hope of doing the same. The media that I would like to recommend today is actually a TV show, a short-form TV show in the British style. It's called A Very English Scandal, and it was produced and initially released on BBC One. It recently came out on Amazon Prime, I believe. I'm pretty sure that's where I watched it. So it's available on those two networks. It will probably be available elsewhere at some point as well. But A Very English Scandal is hilarious and kind of sad and very darkly comedic. It's apparently based on a true story, which is truly bizarre. It is a tale about misbehaving politicians and sex scandals and a collection of, well, very English characters doing very stereotypically caricature-like English things. I don't want to give away too much more than that, but it's definitely worth your time if you are looking for a dark comedy. I want to say it's maybe four episodes, each of about an hour. Definitely worth time invested either way. It is called A Very English Scandal, available on BBC One and Amazon Prime at the moment. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. You can find information about my upcoming tour at becomingtour.com. And you can find me on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and so on at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.